Are you or anyone else you know interested in buying or selling a home? How about saving the planet? Climate Change Realty is the only company operating in all 50 states that allows you to create thousands of dollars in donations absolutely for free. Yes, that's right. Our service and your donations are free. Climate Change Realty can connect you with one of the best real estate agents in your city. And because of that connection, a full 25% of your real estate agent's commissions will be donated to a 501c3 nonprofit organization of your choice. Real estate agents earn between 2 to 3% of the final sales price when they help you buy or sell a home. That's at least $500 donated for every $100,000 worth of real estate sold when you find your real estate agent with Climate Change Realty. Visit www.ccrbolder.com today and click Find an Agent to help us transform the real estate market into a battery for the regenerative economy. Welcome to the podcast. Steven. Great to meet you, man. Thanks so much for taking some time to come on the show. Looking forward to the conversation. Likewise. Thanks for having me on. You got it, man. You're very welcome. And you know, we always like to get this podcast started with a bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing the work you're doing at the current moment. Yeah. My career trajectory has been weird. Uh, I uh, So my name is Stephen Perkins. I'm currently the vice president of grassroots strategy for the American Conservation Coalition, uh, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about here in a little bit. But um, my path to getting to a, a climate environmental nonprofit was very untraditional. Um, but I think, you know, growing up in Texas here, I, I always say that we have just about every climate packed into one state. You go out west and you get the desert. Down south, you get, in my opinion, a very humid, you know, uh, climate. And then I'm up here in north Texas and it's, we have hill country, all this stuff. And so, um, growing up, you know, my dad and I would go camping and, and just a lot of outdoor stuff, um, which, uh, you know, kind of built up this without me even maybe knowing it, this inherent love for the environment. Um, but that is not the direction that I was necessarily going to go. Uh, I went to college for political science. I thought maybe I would do radio, TV, journalism, media, political journalism. Very happy that didn't happen. I would. It's, it's gotten a lot stressful in the past couple of years. Um, it's a mess. Yeah, and but I always enjoyed politics, and I always enjoyed business, and and sort of this idea of how do you communicate, market, sell ideas, services, products that um, are sort of emerging, right? So, um, I, I spent my first couple of years working for a leadership development event management company where I worked with a lot of education-based nonprofits across the country, everything from putting on their national conferences to coaching their leadership teams and helping solve some of the leadership team challenges they're facing. Um, I went from there to a digital marketing firm that focused primarily on political campaigns. Uh, and so uh, that was a stressful couple of midterms and elections uh, working with political campaigns and advocacy organizations and communicating in a time that was not the best for Republicans, uh, communicating why they should be elected. Had some good success there. In the course of all of that, um, Benji Backer, who's the, the president and founder of ACC, we had been friends through some ventures that I had done in college. And uh, he had started this organization about engaging conservatives on the environment. And uh, a spot opened up where they needed more leadership on our grassroots side as we build out our field program. And, uh, and I was, you know, I had known him, some other um, leadership team members in the organization. 
And so kind of made the pivot from, you know, from leadership development to political marketing to now uh, managing a, a team of, uh, of eight field, uh, field staffers who are building communities around the country of people who care about the environment. And so it's been inter- an interesting story, an interesting trajectory of all of that. But I think at the core of it, it still goes back to we are communicating this idea that climate change is an, is, is an important issue and that there are things that need to be done on it to an audience that in recent decades have not been as, um, as open to that. And so that's the fun challenge that I like as part of my role is, is how do we do that effectively and how do we build a movement uh, in a space that from the outside looking in is not primed for this kind of movement. Yeah. Aren't, aren't challenges fun. Don't worry, man. The pivots will continue. Believe me, as, as you continue to go on, where did you go to school? My, my first year I did at Stephen F. Austin State University uh, in East Texas, which I learned I, I'm not good out in the country. Uh, I, I, and then I transferred to, to, to the University of Texas at Arlington. So not the big UT campus in Austin, but the one up here in DFW. And is that where Benji was going to school as well? You know, Benji's up in Seattle. And so it's, hmm. it's kind of interesting how, you know, na- nowadays you know, you can meet some of your best friends just through Twitter, right? And, and I, in college, I was starting a publication, a conservative publication. The idea was conservatism at that time was going through some weird changes. And I was very concerned about some of the, the more negative messaging that was coming out. And so I got a group of people together, a group of young conservatives who um, are kind of phrase for it was we're conservative in our ideology, but we're moderate in our approach and our temperament, Mm. which is to say we're not crazy. Um, Or at least, you know, that was the goal. And Benji was someone who I had followed for a little bit, saw some of his CPAC speeches, reached out to him sort of cold, and he became one of our biggest helpers and supporters in helping getting that off the ground. Um, And then conversely, whenever ACC was getting started, I was able to help him get some of that off the ground. Um, so that's how him and I met. It is, it's a story of, of kind of going way back in terms of us helping each other out for each of our adventures. That's fantastic. Now, I'll tell you this. I, I seldom meet people who would call themselves a Democrat or a Republican or a liberal or a conservative. Before we kind of dive into talking about ACC, I'm wondering what it means to you to be a conservative and why you kind of adhere to that that ideology, if you might call it that yeah it's it's a tough phrase now I, I i found that whether you're a conservative or a liberal those are terms that are it means something different to everybody who you talk to nowadays because of all the different influences there for me the initial draw to conservatism um, was this idea of personal responsibility and really people at the forefront of a country's leadership in other words um, in my mind I think it. There are plenty of areas where the government needs to be active, and, and they need to um, to mobilize um, certain certain things. But in my mind, our country wasn't started by people waiting around for a government to be reformed, and it's not going to continue to thrive by people waiting around for the government. Um, and so, I, I think that really the the best way for for our country to operate. Is for a strong central government that that uh, that does the essential functions that a government should do, but ultimately one that gets out of the way and, and lets people 
experiment and, and do things on their own and, and, and lets the states kind of be at the forefront of most of the policy. And so for me, being a conservative is, is truly about individual liberties, putting the individual at the forefront and making sure that people have the ability to, to live the life that they want to live. How does that differ from like a libertarian point of view? It, it, they go together. Um, I, I think on, on my end, you know, again, libertarianism, there, there's this kind of spectrum that you can go up and down of how extreme that is. I mean, I, I consider myself sort of a fusionist between a conservative and a libertarian. Um, I don't go as far as to say, you know, you could say limited government, and sometimes that's a very small idea of government. I think with where things are today and just the fact that we're maturing as a country and as a world and as a society, we can't have the same size government that we had in the late 1700s, right? Um, but I do think there are plenty of places to cut fat, and, and I certainly agree with libertarians on um, individual liberties and and a lot of those uh, those themes revolving around the government getting out of the way, letting people live their lives. As do I. Um, what's interesting is when you talk about states' rights, it's it's interesting because when you look at Europe, you would think that they are people will compare like France to the U.S., but really it doesn't make sense to do that. It would make more sense to compare a state. And by the way, everyone outside the U.S. calls nation states states. So it would make more sense to compare France to Texas than France to the United States. And um, yeah, the, the the federal government in the U.S. is like the big behemoth that is a big bully around the world. But the, we're not going to go deep into that. Let's 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 talk about the uh, American Conservation Coalition. What exactly is it? What, why does it exist? Sure. So the American Conservation Coalition, or, or ACC as we refer to it, um, is a uh, environmental education and advocacy nonprofit. Um, and our goal, our, our mission is to build the conservative environmental movement. And I'll talk a little bit more about that here in a second. But ultimately, what it looks like is we're an organization of young, center to right of center, uh, uh, young Americans who are tired of waiting around for solutions, for, for government solutions, climate change. And we're just much more interested in being the action and being, you know, to steal a quote, being the change we wish to see in the world. Um, and so we are, we have, you know, uh, thousands of members across the country. We're active in over a hundred different communities across the country. And in each of those communities, we have a, a branch or, or another way to think of it is, is a chapter. And in each of those branches, we have um, a couple dozen, typically is the average size, a couple dozen uh, folks there um, who certainly do advocacy and they're involved in, you know, contacting their members of Congress, other elected officials, being good advocates for our right of center uh, market-based approach to the environment. But also they're getting out and they're cleaning up parks, they're planting trees, they're going on hikes, they're putting on educational events about what does leave no trace mean and, and how can we do that as uh, as outdoorsmen? You know, what does, what are natural climate solutions and, and how can that help us fight climate change? Um, and so really the reason why we approach it from a semi-political lens, like I said, building the conservative environmental movement is because at the, on the local level, climate action is not political. Uh, we can all agree that planting a tree is a good thing. We can all come together, whether you are uh, of uh, the most far left person, or the most far right person, um, we can come together and clean up a park and, and feel good about ourselves and, and form community around that. But at the end of the day, 
Um, there are policy questions that are happening on the federal and, and, and even the state and local levels. And um, there are, I mean, we, we have to admit there are competing ideas, uh, competing approaches about how to, how to solve that. And from our point of view, we want an approach that is less government heavy and more individual private industry um, allowing capitalism to do the thing that capitalism does well, which is solve problems and make things better. Um, and so that is our market-based solution or, or our market-based approach that we bring to, uh, to solving climate change. Um, and, and so, you know, we, we try to, to get people educated about just what that approach means. And there's a lot to it. I mean, as I'm sure you know, climate policy is, can range in all different directions. And um, the idea is not that our members will know everything about that, but typically our members come to a branch with passions of their own. Some people are really, you know, they come from an agriculture background. And that's sort of what they're interested in. Some of them are more of like living in an urban area and they, and they want to talk about how urban areas can mitigate climate change or um, some people, you know, really enjoy the wildlife or the, or the, um, uh, the, the natural area preservation. And so there's a place for everybody, no matter their interests in our organization. We do a lot of different campaigns focusing on different topics, but uh, we're really all about bringing people together and, and just getting something done. Yeah, as am I. And I'll say that I came to the work that I'm doing from a very, very similar angle. I think in the past, I've spoken a lot on the show about having a... Um, a tendency to think that the the market will do a better job at fixing the problem. But at the end of the day, I don't think that's really fair to say because I, I don't really know what is going to be the most effective way to fix the problem. That's why I've kind of decided to allow my clients to make the end decision of where they want their impact to be created. But I know that I personally came from a business background and I personally don't like the idea of forcing someone to do something because I think there's a fundamental right and the way I've become so creative is be, by being able to do what I want so I kind of really want to I think you know it's like I think of like Killmonger at the end of like Black Panther when he says it's like better to live it's like live free or die essentially the the New Hampshire um motto um and I really adhere to that I think it's not there's not worth living in a world where we have Look, we all have like a carbon score. And if you go above a certain carbon score, you can't like go out to a bar or you can't like socialize with people because you're a, a bad person. But at the same time, you know, we need to live in a livable world. So I think the the free market approach for me personally allows me to be very creative and and not force people to do the work we need to get done, even though I say it needs to get done. But I I just I can't take away people's freedom because it's taken centuries and centuries of humanity working to create this amazing America experiment. And it seems like we have such a blessing and it could uh, go fleeting away with one uh, dictator, one Putin type character. Cause you look at, you have something to say. Yeah. No, and I, I think, you know, the business model that you have is actually a great example of what we talk about market-based solutions, because um, you're saying, you know, we're, we're going to make a profit. We're going to make money. That's what a business exists to do, but also we're going to give back and, um, and, and there is, there is, you know, we know that consumers, because they've been doing this over the past couple of decades, since this has really become prevalent, consumers want to make decisions that they can feel good about. And they want to do business with businesses that um, are looking out for the world. And so I think that's, that's exactly right. I, I agree with you, but I, I, I don't think that businesses exist to make a profit. I think that businesses exist to propagate a mission 
whether that's Apple trying to um, inspire or enable the individual to be as powerful, as creative as large corporations, or it's Amazon trying to develop the ultimate customer experience for purchasing things. I don't think that the companies are existing to make profit, but that seems to be the the mechanism that most effectively creates the largest amount of impact versus the only one that could pair is a government. And that there's no really, there's really no freedom involved in a government. The government exists to create mandates. So it's like, they're both, all right, they're, they're, they're interesting forms of, of organizing things, but I tend to swing to the freedom side because I have a bias to continue to be free. So, so in, in your opinion, what role does the government have to play in the, the desire to degree, decrease greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, I, I mean, look, um, look at some of the environmental regulations that we have in this country that got rid of acid rain and have cleaned up waterways and continue. You know, there's a big initiative right now to get rid of lead pipes and replace those. I, I mean, that to me is is a great place the government should be involved um, when it comes to punishing businesses, over regulating to the point where they are strangled and and really, especially the small businesses, which. It's a background that I come from with uh, with my family. Um, you know, that is where I start to draw the line. And, and I think any time that we talk about, I think we throw around government action way too loosely today. We see a problem. Let's get a let's get a piece of legislation to expand the size of government to deal with it. And I, I wish that we were able to take a step back and say, at the end of the day, government enforcement means someone gets fined, someone goes to jail. So like there, there are, there are serious repercussions with that. And I, I wish we, we weren't so uh, willing to, to throw that around and, and just think that government legislation should be uh, the, the, the go-to solution there. Um, and so the role that government plays is, is to keep us safe uh, and, and to keep us protected. And, and, and I, you know, again, would go back to some of the, the environmental regulations and some of the legislation, I would also say that the government has passed to incentivize business. So it's more of a carrot versus the stick. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great use, not only of taxpayer money, but also just a great use of governing force to say, we're going to, we're going to help things trend in the right direction. Um, now, you have to do that without picking win- winners and losers. That's an important distinction. Uh, but but the government should certainly be involved uh, in, in that way because really there's there's you know you can't for some of these things you can't rely on necessarily private industry to to do that. Sure, it's a complex topic, but one of the most terrifying ways about this idea of legislating your way out of every single human issue that exists is that when you write the laws, they don't disappear. They just write more laws on top of them based on the old ones. And there's this idea of precedent in the Supreme Court where everything is based off of the laws we write today is going to be screwing over people 100 years from now. Whereas like if you run a company like I'm like, I think off the top of my like, um, what was it? Nikon was like the camera company. Like when they, they, when their products don't make sense anymore, they go out of business. Whereas like laws, they never disappear. One of the interesting things I was just telling my friend about this the other day is that I was listening to Elon Musk. Someone asked him how they should run like government on Mars. And I loved what he said. He said that like laws should have like an expiration date. Like after 90 years, the law should automatically dissolve unless people vote to like reinstate it. 
I would love to see that in, in America because there's some some laws that seem kind of crazy. Um, so as far as actually effectively mitigating climate change without creating like legislation or mandates or restrictions on people, what are your thoughts on how to effectively actually get this done? Yeah, there's a couple of things. I mean, the big campaign that our organization has been pushing recently, and, and it's it's uh, it, it was an educational campaign, is about natural climate solutions. So think back to uh, grade school science when you learn that trees capture carbon out of the air uh, and, and, and use that as sort of that's nature repairing the world. Um, so natural climate solutions would be things like that. It would be like restoring our wetlands and forest lands and better forest management and regenerative agriculture, all of this stuff that contributes uh, to uh, allowing nature to essentially fight back against climate change. I think that's a really good thing. And the cool thing about it is that everyone agrees. 90% of people agree that planting trees as a way to reduce carbon emissions is a good thing. I'd love to meet the 10% that doesn't believe in that. Um, we did some polling recently and found that specifically among young American voters, 18 to 30, 80% of them agree that we should be planting more trees. Um, this is something that is extremely low cost because largely it's on landowners, forest owners, waterland owners. Um, and it's something that the, the government, again, can incentivize, but it's not a set of regulations. It's not a set of rules. Um, and, and the other cool thing about natural climate solutions, which I think more people should be talking about is studies are showing that if they were implemented correctly on a global scale, we could reach our 23, we could get 37% of the way to our 2030 climate goals. Now, a th more than a third of the way to our carbon emission uh, uh, goals by just one kind of solution of like planting trees and, and making our soil healthier. I think that's a no-brainer, uh, and it's something that gets drowned out for some of the more, for lack of a better term, some of the more sexy climate legislation out there, some of the stuff that gets more media play because planting trees is not as good of a cable news hit as other stuff. Um, but if we're serious about fighting climate change, we've got to be serious about the solutions that have bipartisan support and that people um, uh, can do today, not 10 years from now. Have you put any thought into how to make these natural climate solutions economically viable or to get industry to invest in these? Because I'm always trying to figure out a way to make that make a lot of sense. Whereas we talked about profit before businesses might not exist for profit, in my opinion, but they definitely want some. So have you put any thought into how we can get industry to invest in natural climate solutions and actually get a return? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a number of ways. I mean, first of all, we're seeing that um, for corporations to have a sustainability department. That's a relatively new department that companies have. Um, and these sustainability departments, I mean, some of it is PR. They, they want to look good and show their communities that they care about these these issues. But but also there there is a uh, consumers have put pressure on companies to be more, um, uh, you know, more focused on environmentally sound practices. And so you see companies all the time planting trees to offset their carbon emissions or, uh, you know, companies that have to cut down trees for products. They're replanting trees where that wasn't always the standard practice. 
And what they're finding is that it's actually not that big of a financial burden, if, if it's even one at all. Sometimes it's quite profitable for them to do these things um, because they're essentially rebuilding their supply of, of resources. Um, but also the consumer demand, uh, people are just buying more from these companies who have environmental uh, plans, uh, sustainability plans. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, this is sort of one of those things where we're still relatively new into this idea of corporations being stewards of the environment. And as we see with new things in a market, it takes some time to reach that profitability point, just like in a business in general, it could take you five to 10 more years uh, to reach profitability. It's the same sort of thing. We're, we're turning in the upwards direction. And so uh, I think in many ways, it, it's already getting there. Yeah. So it sounds like it's in, in many ways, it's on the, the consumer to make it profitable for the producer to create a more um, environmentally sound product. You, you vote with your dollars, right? And, uh, and, and granted, for most of the things that people buy, we're not actively thinking about, does this, is this product made in a sustainable way? Is the company that I'm supporting focused on sustainability? But, but I do think that people have become more aware about that and they're becoming more aware about that. And it is something that people are worried about. I mean, I, I find myself now, like, you know, I, I just got stuff for my garden on the patio and I'm looking at organic soils versus regular soils because mm -hmm. I've learned more about chemicals and all. I mean, it's just about education of, of, of consumers. And we've seen that they will choose the better option, even if it costs them a little bit more. But over time, of course, those costs go down. Yeah. And that's ideal. Um, would you consider carbon pricing a limited government strategy for mitigating climate change? Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll caveat here and say that uh, I'll, I'm speaking on behalf of my opinion rather than the opinion of my organization on carbon pricing. I am personally not a fan, uh, and and there's there's a couple of reasons. Number one, I I, I don't think it is inherently a limited government solution. Uh, in my view, many iterations of it is a carbon tax. Um, I would much rather see again. It is a stick, not the carrot. Um, my con my biggest concern with it is that whenever burdens are placed on business, we often see that they're not eating those costs. They are putting those costs down on consumers. And what I am very concerned about with carbon pricing or a carbon tax is um, primarily the, the, the communities uh, that already are economically struggling. Um, and especially right now where we have an energy crisis and economic stagflation, all this stuff, um, I'm worried about the effect of that um, on people who already can't afford where things are currently. So that's number one. Number two, I, I think it does grow the, the scope and size of government. And then number three, I, it, it, in my mind, it's sort of, it's a broken window fallacy, which is to say that it is a policy that we are trying to use to repair things that have already happened rather than focus on the future and try to find ways to reduce uh, the effect of things that are going to happen you know, a year uh, or a week, a month, a year, 10 years from now. Um, and so for me, the, the, the carbon pricing model um, just isn't feasible from an economic standpoint. It's also not politically feasible. We've seen it brought up multiple times by members uh, of Congress and, and it just doesn't go anywhere. People aren't, aren't very fond of the idea. So 
in your point of view, so do you consider carbon CO2 waste going into the environment an externality that's untaxed or is that just, it's just not in your kind of ideal of the way the economic machine works? In, in my view, the, the carrot that you put in place is to open up carbon markets and make it, um, I learned this just yesterday. The voluntary market. There are, only, there are only 11 carbon capture facilities around the world. Um, these are facilities that are literally sucking carbon out of the air and storing it or, or using it for another use. Only 11 of those. We should be build, building more of those. We should be opening carbon markets to where companies can pay to offset their emissions. Many of them already are doing that. Um, if we're just speaking realistically here, that is the only way that we get to carbon to, to net zero is if we have carbon offsets to make that happen. But why are they going to get involved in the voluntary carbon market? Are you going to say because the consumer is demanding that they become net zero? Well, that's certainly one of the biggest drivers of them doing it voluntarily right now. Uh, we've seen an exponential increase in companies going into those carbon markets. And the other cool thing about carbon markets is it benefits forest landowners, ranch landowners, landowners, because they are the ones who are uh, essentially, you know, in the traditional model, planting the tree to offset carbon emissions. So they're getting income from that. And then companies are also paying into that um, and, and, and scoring brownie points, if you will, with consumers and uh, driving up their profits in the long run because of that. Okay. But don't you think that there is a massive price to not reducing emissions that if what if there was a mechanism that wasn't a government input what if there was a way to price carbon that didn't come from the government would you be more likely to be in favor of that whether i guess i'm trying to think of a self-imposed i guess that's what net emission goals is for corporations to self-imposed yeah 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 you you have companies that are under no government pressure at the moment who are saying we are going to reach net zero by this year. You have industry associations who are saying part of our part of membership is this commitment uh, uh, to to being uh, more economic or more environmentally sound and, and reaching net zero. And of course, major corporations, companies want to be a part of those trade associations. So, yeah, I absolutely think there's a way to do that. That isn't um, that isn't a government uh, set carbon pricing. Yeah. Okay. That's an interesting point. I'll, I'll have to think on that more. But I really appreciate you sharing that perspective because, as people know, I'm a huge advocate of carbon pricing. But um, I'm always looking for simple solutions, and it's never really simple with this kind of stuff. So, as far as like general views of conservative politicians, who we, as we know in this country, have been really lacking on environmental stewardship whether it be supporting legislation or speaking publicly about this stuff or denying climate change. What, and then it's, what I find so strange about this is that like, I brought this up several times, like Teddy Roosevelt started the national parks, um, the national park system, like conservatives and Republicans are known for their environmental conservation support. What's, what's going on, man, these days. That's what we're trying to fix. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, conservatives and, and Republicans have a strong conservation record. It's not just, you know, Teddy Roosevelt kind of kicked off American conservation environmentalism, which is really great. It's national parks, national forests, public lands. He mm -hmm. did all of that, which is great. Richard Nixon, who, despite his flaws, yeah. uh, 
oversaw what many con- consider the peak of an, of American environmentalism in the 70s. He created the EPA, had the Endangered Wildlife uh, Act uh, or, or Species Act, and um, uh, there were you know clean air and water standards established under that. Even H.W. Bush, Reagan, uh, up until George Bush, and, and then the the 21st century broke. And we had, I mean, I don't put the blame on Al Gore, but I use that as an example. Al Gore came out and talked about global warming. It became a political issue. And in my view, what happened, and this is not an excuse, it's more of an explanation. In my view, what happened is Republicans saw Democrats start to lead on this issue and specifically talk about um, this idea of, of climate change, or as it, as it was mostly referred to back then, global warming. And Republicans thought, we don't have an answer to this right now. And so we're a little scared. We're going to, we're going to turn this into a political issue, you know, call them crazy. Uh, but we're, we're not going to sit at the table. Whereas they were like chairing the meetings before, and now they're leaving the table. Wow. The good news in my mind, it, it re- that really sort of denialism peaked around the Tea Party 08 uh, era um, when Obama released his his climate plan in 09, that was a big um, area of contention for Republicans, despite the fact that, by the way, Mc- Obama and McCain's climate policy during that election were very similar. They weren't really debating over much there, which is pretty cool to note. Um, but I do think, thankfully, we're now on the decline of that. Uh, something I always like to point out, right now in the U.S. House of Representatives, um, the third largest caucus, not of just Republicans, but the third largest caucus of the U.S. House at large is the Conservative Climate Caucus, uh, which is great because it's conservatives and it has the word climate in it. Um, and, and so they're already gathering and talking about essentially reclaiming this issue. How do we get our seat back at the table? In the five years that ACC has been around, when we first started, you could not get a Republican politician to say the word climate change. Today, they're very open to it. There's still people on the outside who are, are, are hesitant or uh, will say it in their own way. But we've made considerable, pro- considerable progress just in the past five years. Um, and I think you're, you're going to, as this issue becomes more and more important, especially young people, you're going to see Republicans lead on this a lot more. I sure hope so. And let's be real. There's people on the inside who aren't super favorable about it as well, whether it be the big T or or, or anyone else. And then once you see a lot, um, this is really becoming an, an industry from, from my perspective with the people I talk to. There's a, a environmental stewardship and climate industry. There's big business. There's big money. And once these renewable energy companies outpace fossil fuel companies, it's going to be, I think, a lot of renewed interest. There's a lot of forces behind it that are pushing it. So um, I appreciate what y'all are doing to, to keep that that movement going. Um, Something that, if, if you don't mind me, I don't. some of the point out, um, there's an article, I think it was in the Atlantic called the, the green vortex. Um, you know, we talked about, there hasn't been a major piece of environmental legislation from the, the Congress. Uh, when president Obama came into office, he laid out that 2009 climate plan. And what it said in part is number one, we want to cut how we want to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 17% by 2020. That, by the, that bill never passed. Congress never acted on that. By 2020, we actually decreased it by 21%. That's what I thought, yeah. 
Yeah. And also it said that the U.S. needed to generate 20% of its electricity from renewables. In 2021, we surpassed that. And so it became this, described as this perfect storm of business and technology and policy and private individuals and and, uh, NGOs coming together, acting on this issue without a single piece of major climate legislation from the federal government. We were able to accomplish all these things. So I think it shows that there, there's there's room um, there's room for progress even if the climate bill doesn't get passed. Well, you, you make a good case, man. I will say th- <laughs> thank you for adding that in. I suppose I think of all places, you know, it's like, you know, it's good. Yeah. I think a lot of what my listeners would be concerned about is is, is if the time frame is, is going to make sense on that. A lot of people are really concerned about the IPCC report. And um, the the time frame on it, I don't really believe in the countdown clocks and that if we don't act within the next 10 years, we're all doomed. But I do believe that the longer we are not not having an economy that's as efficient as it could be, not only are we decreasing life on Earth, but we're not living up to our our full potential to be the amazing America that we truly can be. So that that's my perspective. What What are your like thoughts? So we talked a lot about like not having mandates or not imposing laws on people. What are some of the other issues you have with the left's like methodology for achieving climate action or environmental stewardship? Yeah. I th- the, one of the things that we say with our organization is action over activism. Um, and what that means in my mind is there is absolutely a, a place for, for being an activist and going out and protesting and raising awareness for the issues that are destroying our planet. But at the end of the day, if you aren't working in your local community to do something about it and you're only standing outside with a megaphone yelling about it, I don't see the point. And I, and I, I don't see those individuals as particularly useful uh, in the movement. And so what we try to do through things like cleanups and tree plantings, the argument against it is, you know, the impact that y'all are having is, is very minimal compared to what needs to be done. And I fully give people that. Uh, by us cleaning up a park, we're not solving climate change, but we're doing something about it and we're starting locally and we're sort of putting our actions where our words are. And so that's what I think is important. And oftentimes on the on the, um, on the left side of environmental um, advocacy, and, and I recognize they come from the same place that I do. We all want to make the earth a cleaner, greener place. But I think oftentimes... Um, it's one thing about not taking matters into your own hands and, and not doing something. It's another thing to say, you know, the Build Back Better bill didn't get passed, and so all hope is lost. It's another thing to say if, 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 this, if this piece of legislation doesn't get passed, if the Green New Deal doesn't get passed, we are doomed. Um, I'm personally, I'm not interested in having a discussion about doomsday scenarios if the government doesn't act. I'm more interested in about what can we do as individuals to, to push this forward? And so the, the cool thing is, although our organization is you know, center-right, um, what I mentioned is that we have a lot of people who self-identify as liberals or Democrats who join us, um, and they like it because we're on the ground doing the action. We're, 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 uh, we're putting said action over activism. Well, what really is the government at the end of the day, but a group of people getting together and and doing things? I mean, we we are the government. Now, you can go, you can look at it as the sense that you want to go all the way up to the top and create the rules that are going to facilitate the way everyone acts. 
Or you can look at the rules, which, by the way, in this country are kind of guidelines in many ways. I mean, the there are, there are certain rules like not murdering people that are very strict. But I mean, other things you can kind of skip by. You don't have to comment on that. That's just my perspective. But um, you don't have to stop at the stop sign if it doesn't have what is a white outline or something <laughs> like that. I, I'm just saying like. You can shift the society by leading by example. And it's not even just, it's not even about shifting the whole society. It's about making the area around you better by being a better version of yourself. I mean, you can take it down to the individual level. You can take it up to the whole society needing to be better. But the only thing you have control over is what you do is what you wake up in the morning and what you want to do. If you're a person who wants to advocate for policy, um, you know, it might not be your forte, but maybe it's someone else's. But if if you're really passionate about this issue, you can find a way it meshes with your personality and, and go out and do something. So I, I like how you mentioned that there are people who identify as um, liberal or liberals and Democrats that join your organization. Do you think this issue is, is a place where we can kind of mend the divide and kind of unite? And I'm specifically talking about about us, our generation, our young folks. Is this somewhere where we can kind of get rid of this? I don't even know what to call it anymore. This, this clown show that's going on where like, if, so, if one, like you said, Oh, like the Republicans saw the Democrats were for this. So they decided like, hold on, that can't be good. Is this something where we can kind of like unite and mend this divide over the time? Yeah. I, I think our, our tolerance as a younger generation for some of this BS is, is much lower. Um, because like you mentioned with, with some of the, the countdown clocks, right. That people subscribe to, um, I, I don't necessarily believe in those either, but I, but I do know that we need to act soon. We need to do something soon. There is an urgency to it. And I think young people see that there is an urgency and, you know, our politicians are not always thinking too long-term because to be a little on the nose, they're not here for long-term um, given the average age of Congress. But what I will say is that young people are very interested in, um, being a much better version uh, of, of a generation than the ones that have come before us in terms of actually creating progress on this issue. And again, when I have conversations with people, oftentimes politics doesn't even come up in it. I tell them about the climate solutions that I believe in, like planting trees or uh, making our soil healthier. And, and, uh, and these are things that conservatives believe in, liberals believe in, people who are apolitical believe in. Um, I really think the bulk of our solutions are apolitical. We get hung up on the political stuff if you are a political person, because I guess in some way it's fun to have something to go up against. It's ha it's fun to have something to debate, um, but that gets in the way of us doing things that that matter, right? Mm -hmm. um, when we get caught up in these political debates, we're spending our time focusing on that when we could be spending our time focusing on the 90% of things that we do agree on. And so I think a challenge for our generation is going to be to focus more on that, on that 90%. Sure. Well, I'm thinking of, for example, that you, let's say that you were going to do a local tree planting event. And um, let's say, for example, that I'm a big government guy and I, and I want, I want, I want mandates galore. I want the government to tell us what to do for everything. And um, I show up to this event and, and I meet you and we're talking about environmental stewardship and, oh, my God, if you plant this tree, it can draw down all this carbon. It'll it'll release all this nutrients into the soil. And, and this is going to be awesome. And me and you get to talking and maybe we go an hour talking about climate change. And then all of a sudden we come to this topic of the, of how to, how to go about doing it. The government is 
I just I feel like it's it's one thing to like read your bio and be like, I'm a conservative. I believe in this. And then be like, oh, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to work with that guy. And then another thing to go and meet you and see that you're a human and that we, we all just want to live in a, a beautiful, prosperous world. And then you come to a point where you disagree. It's almost, I mean, I'm kind of crazy, but I think that's almost like fun. Like it's great. Like if we both wanted to, if we both had the same beliefs, I feel like that's kind of boring. Like it's, if you're united on values and you can see most people's values, it's like have a happy family, live a happy life, make money, go out and, and be creative or, or whatever. It just seems like it's like, you know, the age old way of bringing people together. Uh, I'm just not sure who it is. I, just, I don't know. Those are my thoughts on like in, uniting people. It should be fun to, to, to interact with people who don't believe what you believe. And I, I think that the biggest tool that people don't use enough is we can agree to disagree and then we can work a, you know, very hard on the things we do agree on. Um, it, it seems like sometimes today you reach a disagreement and that's sort of the end of a relationship with somebody. And that's not how we're meant to be as people. Um, and that, that, that's certainly not us being like nice to each other. Um, yeah, there are people who I talk to all the time where they have a totally different worldview than I do. I usually learn something from them. Uh, I've had my mind changed a couple of times or at least my perspective change or, or better context because of those conversations. So I love having those conversations because it either will change my mind and, and open my mind up to, to a better way to do something, or it'll make me understand better where people are coming from. And so when I'm advocating for something in the future, I can keep that in mind and, and think about how to, how to speak to that. One of the things I've, I think I might be wrong, but I've found is like, if you're very like far, far left, they almost have more contempt for people. I actually, I'll speak from like personal example. Like I really didn't, didn't, I, I was like, I, I voted for, for Joe, but like what, during the, um, the primary, I was like, okay, anyone but Joe, like as long as it's not Joe, like I'm good. And, and it's, I feel like there is this tendency to if like, if you're further down the spectrum to have more contempt for people who are trying to achieve the same things as you in a different way than you have for the person who is trying to do it, like who is trying to go for something different. Cause at least they're not like getting in your way. I don't know. I don't know if that like made sense, but it's just, yeah, it's just a strange phenomenon that if you're going after the same thing, but you're going about it a different way, you almost get more angry at that person. Cause you're like, why are you doing it that way? You should be doing it my way. I've got figure it figured out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Everyone has a way, you know, I think that's what I've learned is that everyone has a preference and a way to do something. And um, finding the middle ground is really tough. We often speak about it like it's this, it's like this pie in the sky idea, but we often just speak about like it's easy, you know, just come together and find a middle ground. It's really tough to do that because people, like you said, are really dead set oftentimes on, on their ways of doing something. Um, I would contend that even people on the far right kind of have that view toward uh, like in a, an election system, have that view toward the more moderate candidate. Um, so, yeah, I think that's completely normal. Yeah, but it shouldn't be. If you if we if we want the same stuff, it's like how you go about doing it. I guess it's one thing if you're going to de destroy the world to reach your goal versus save it or fix it. But um... I think it becomes a difference between incrementalist and uh, and and. Um, I would kind of call them not at all with a negative connotation, but revolutionary, mm -hmm. right? On our organization and, and me personally, I, I believe that we should make steady progress toward what we want. 
Whereas some people want to get in there, shake everything up and either blow it all over, start from scratch or tear down a lot of, you know, move fast and break things as the old Apple um, uh, motto used to go. Um, th that's maybe an interesting debate to have of whether, of which is best. Many people think that in criminalism, in the climate conversation, that we don't have time to do that. Mm -hmm. But I would argue that the time that we spend arguing over those revolutionary ideas is time that we can spend implementing the more incremental ideas, and we'd actually get a lot further quicker than going the other route. Very, very eloquently put. And I think what a lot of people don't appreciate and speaking from experience, I don't really, this is probably the most politics I've talked in months. Um, I, I don't spend too much time in this, in this sphere, but as a young man, a young, arrogant man in 18, I was watching secular talk and, and all like Bernie rallies and getting really into like this idea of, of revolutionary. And I wanted to take over the world and change everything. But if you have a, a kind of thorough understanding of history, you really need to appreciate how significant the moment in history we live in now. The U.S. is only 200 and something years old. This experiment that we've conducted has like created more prosperity. It's destroyed lots of nature. I'm not going to deny that at all. And it, not everyone's equal, but it's created this amazing amount of prosperity. And the, the history of humanity has been domination by kings there's always been a a monarch who's been leading the society and this is this one with one experiment that we had where we actually allowed people besides maybe like um greece like allowed people to actually have a say in what we do and then of course it's just a very like it gets really deep the, the uh the necessity of human greed and the fact that there's a one percent that has more wealth and control than anyone else but it's more even than it's ever been and this idea that you want to be revolutionary and like tear everything down it's just at least i would i, I would recommend that people look into like the history of communism and the history of monarchical systems and had lords and turfs and whatever it was like it's it's not as bad as it could be now in fact it's actually kind of good uh but you know people will, will Tell me that's my white privilege talking, but it is what it is. All right, man. Enough of my my uh, my thoughts. Do you um? We're kind of getting to the end here. Do you kind of see this climate change issue as more like intersectional, or is it more like a logistical, scientific? We just need to draw down CO two, or is this more at like the root of the issue of society? I mean, at the core, it's about cutting emissions, right? That that's climate change, and and that's what we talk about, but to get there and the effects of it are certainly intersectional. I mean, we're talking about, I've, I've had some really interesting conversations over the past year about how climate affects um, people of color differently, communities that are disadvantaged. Um, and I think that's really important for us to talk about, um, you know, and, and that's one of the, you know, going back to the pricing, the car, the, the price on carbon thing. I, I mean, that, that's like where that concern, one of my concerns comes from. And so, yeah, th this is something that is so, it touches on every part of our society and anything that is economic is inherently, um, inherently touches everything in a society. Um, and so I, I would definitely say it's more intersectional and, and um, the conversations that are being hosted between communities, I think are important to have. Um, and, you know, for example, you know, I was raised in, in Houston. It's a big energy production. I mean, Texas in general is a big energy production state, but Houston is 
you're either employed in the energy industry or you know someone who is, someone in your family is. When we have a discussion about a transition to clean energy, the way that translates to people in people's minds in Houston is my livelihood's about to get cut off. And there are some that would say, well, you make money through a, a dirty practice like tough. But I would say people don't do that because they're bad people. People do that because they want to feed a family. They want to support a family. And we should be able to approach these conversations and say, how do we do this in a fair way? How do we do this in a just way to where people can keep their livelihoods, where we can actually increase the quality of life um, and keep that trend going? Um, and how can we do it in a way that's going to be fair to all the communities that don't typically have the advantages that you know, the majority communities, if you will, have. Um, so it, it's, it's not a discussion that I'm an expert on, but I think it's a really interesting one. And, and it's, uh, it's something we have to keep in mind. I don't consider myself an expert on anything. And I hope, I hope to never, never do. That's good. Yeah, it is good, man. It's nice to be a generalist and just kind of try and make sure everyone can understand what really smart people are saying. That's kind of the idea with this podcast. I do want to squeeze in one more question for you, which is kind of unrelated to climate change. I just would love to hear your perspective on it. I personally, I understand why politicians really harp when they're making a policy proposal. They're saying, if we do this, it's going to create lots of jobs. So you should do this. But I'm of the opinion that we shouldn't be proposing changes in order to create jobs, but rather improve the economy. So just because someone's working doesn't mean they're, they're being efficient. I just wanted to gauge your, your perspective on that right before we signed off here. That's a really interesting, I, I've never heard someone put it that they way. Can't but say it, they can't right. say it publicly because if you talk about, if you talk yeah. about not caring about jobs, you, you're not going to get votes. It's not going to happen. Well, and, and I don't even think that's saying that you don't care about jobs. I think it's saying, I actually think that that's you saying you care more about like human dignity and just a better society. And, and I would argue that when you do that, you're go going to create jobs as a side effect. Creating jobs is sort of one of those really popular, low hanging fruit things. And I guess that's my problem with political topics in general, whether it's climate change or whether it's anything. We are so comfortable because we've been dumbed down by, by media, by politicians. We're so comfortable having these surface level conversations that I describe it as like, we're not having sober conversations because we're either really angry about something or we don't actually know what we're talking about. And so we just say what feels good and what sounds good. I, I love when people say it's time for a national discussion about X issue. Because we're never going to, it's never a national discussion, right? Like a presidential debate is never an intellectual exercise in how we should, how we should solve issues. It's basically TikTok now. Basically, <laughs> I, I would not be surprised if the next election has a TikTok debate. I, I'm cringing at that. Um, but I mean, one of the reasons why we focus so much on local communities is I think if you're going to have intelligent discussions with people who know what they're talking about, you got to be doing it at the local level. You have to be talking about, you know, your neighbor, Jim down the street and the mayor and Susan and, and all, you know, all these, like, you need to be talking with people who are going to affect it. Um, yeah, I, sorry, that's kind of a, a rant based on what you said, but I, I think that's a really, a really interesting way of looking at it. We should be improving society as a whole rather than just talking about 
creating jobs. That's that that's exactly right. Yeah. Um I just wanted to throw that in in the end, man. Steven, it's been awesome. yeah, I appreciate it. It's been great having you on the podcast, man. Really, really great to get your perspective. I appreciate what your organization is doing. And I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm happy that it's started by young people. I'm happy that you're engaging conservatives. Keep up the great work. Any final pieces of advice for young folks who are just passionate about making this world a better place? Yeah, I, I would say don't assume that you have to be an expert or or well trained to get out and try stuff. Um there are people all the time who decide they're just tired of the status quo. They're tired of feeling frustrated and they're just going to get out and figure this stuff out. My advice is that you're not going to be perfect when you're, when you start, you're not going to be perfect 10, 15, 20 years after you start. Um, it is a, it is a lifelong process, but you know, the mentality of it's better to start today than to never start. I, I, I'm, I would beg people do something and, uh, and, and be a part of, um, be a part of the positive impact that you want to see in the world. And it will positively impact your life every day by taking a step. You just got to get that momentum going. Steven, I appreciate the time, man. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Steven. Appreciate it. You got it. All right, everybody. See you on the next one. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrealty.org today.